Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ben, do you want to do the introduction? Have you heard the introduction often enough to actually be able to do the introduction? Yeah, but I mean, I don't remember what it is. Maybe you, you try to do a Scottish accent and do the introduction. I'm not going to try doing a Scottish accent. <laughs> <laughs> You're putting me on blast before you've even started this fucking thing. Come on. Be Mark. <laughs> it's it. not happening. No, I can't, I can't be Mark. Only Mark can be Mark. He's irreplaceable. I've heard the show. Welcome to the Unsung Podcast. Uh, I'm your host. Um, hi, yeah, this is... Uh, this is a, an unusual episode of the Unsung Podcast. We are interviewing Mr. Benjamin John Power, a.k.a. Ben Power, a.k.a. Blank Mass. Uh, it's myself and David this week. Mark is still ill, in the words of Morrissey. His fever broke, which I, you know, I thought that was a good sign, but apparently it's not enough. <laughs> it means he's on the mend, right? I think so, yeah. He's through the worst of it, but... Either that or his body's shutting down. <laughs> yeah. What colour is his phlegm right now? <laughs> God. Um, yeah. So, Ben, hi, welcome to Unsung Podcast. Thank you for having me. I know it's been a, a long time coming. <laughs> and I've been fobbing you off for a long time, but you finally got a hold of me. We just get, turned get your up at your door. And, yeah. <laughs> annoyed your wife. Yeah. yeah. Scared your cat. And now we're here. Driven a wedge right into the heart of their marriage. Yeah. <laughs> T- taking over the front room. The cat's hating it. But, you know, it's it's a very, very nice house you got here. Thank you. So uh, we are going to have a little bit of a chat about you, about your back catalogue, mm-hmm. about the music that motivates you, and maybe get a few suggestions in the second part of some records that you think are potential unsung classics. I know you've got some absolute humdingers that didn't make the cut, uh, so we'll <laughs> give them a mention as well, because <laughs> yeah. you have a few... I'd say slightly unhealthy fascinations with certain recording artists uh, <laughs> that we'll, we'll come to in due course. One in particular, I think, <laughs> is the, yeah, okay, well, we can we can talk about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, to get us kicked off, I mean, I don't know, it feels a bit crass to do the intro. Ben, do you want to give us a little bit of your background, all the kind of, your first page of your CV? Do you have a full driving licence? <laughs> no, I actually have a provisional and um, I've been meaning to learn to drive for some time now, but I've not got round to it for one reason or another, touring and stuff. But I'm from Worcester. I grew up in Worcester, which is the Midlands town. Famous for... Sauce? For sauce, yeah. Famous for sauce and porcelain. And actually, Napalm Death recorded one of their albums there. Do you know about this studio? I don't oh, really. Birdsong Studio. Yeah, I only found out a couple of months ago. And I, the, the studio is called Birdsong, and it was actually uh, just down the road from where I used to live, and I never knew about it when I lived there, Fuck. and I found out about it, yeah, yeah a couple of months fun. ago. Is that right? Yeah. I've heard you talking about it <clears throat> Yeah, I am. In fact, from Enslavement, that was, they actually recorded that album there. I think Scum was recorded there as well. It was all the Lee Dorian stuff, so... They would have been kicking around just down the road from me, and I was completely oblivious. Which <laughs> oh, is, oh, yeah. you were you were probably uh, getting yourself ready for some baggy khakis and some bike chains. Yeah, that's uh, probably about right. Yeah, that soul patch. Yeah, I'm not too sure whether that was the <laughs> new metal phase or the Nirvana phase, but 
Um, yeah, so Ben's probably best known as an electronic artist for most of us, uh, either as Blank Mass or as One Half of Fuck Buttons. But I think right off the bat, one of the things that's most interesting about your story is that you're a big metalhead. You're a fan of extreme music in general. Mm-hmm. And I think that has obviously informed your own work quite a bit. Uh, but it's, it's yeah. very interesting the role that metal's played and bands like Napalm Death, but also other Midlands people such as Sabbath, obviously. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. Uh, what was it like growing up in that part musically? Like, what were the first musical ventures you got involved in? So, I mean, there wasn't much to do really there other than skateboard and try and play music. You know, I was I was playing in punk bands when I was 14. Um, you a skateboarder? I was a skateboarder, yeah. That's actually how I met my bandmate in Fuck Buttons was skateboarding in Worcester. So when you weren't doing that, you were you were making a racket with your friends. What kind of punk? You know, there was kind of hardcore. I went through a bit of a rap metal thing as well <laughs> at some point that we probably shouldn't go too far into. Hey, but don't I, be ashamed. No, don't I did. I, I actually, you know, I actually was a singer in a rap metal band, which is uh, which is a thing. I did. Can you? So does that it, mean what, that you were? Name? Does that mean you were rapping, or were you the the singer compared to the rapper? I was the rapper uh, and the singer. Wow. Yeah, and also the guitarist. Yeah. <laughs> what was oh the God. name of the band? Oh, don't do this. We're to not going to find it, are we? So <laughs> the band was called Deadlock. Deadlock. Actually. Was it spelled yeah. in any way unconventionally? No, I think I th- we were kids at the time. You, you know, we were fourteen, and I think we, I think we, for some reason, put like an like. Umlaut above the E, just because we thought it looked like yeah, you know cool metal. and graph, you know. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean you've got nothing to worry like about. Like a meaningless umlaut. You, you literally have nothing to worry about because MySpace lost all of their music files anyway. Very recently. I know. I'm absolutely gutted by that. So like, much. Like your ignominious past is lost as well. Dave. Yeah, I know. I don't think I've got the originals. I was using MySpace as an archive, but well, I'll probably oh, actually kill myself after telling you this. But the uh, Deadlock, what one of our tracks was actually used on a metal. Hammer cover mount CD. Holy oh, shit! Yeah, so seriously, yeah. So I was like, do you, you know, remember f- fifteen, sixteen at the time? No, I don't remember which episode. And they've all been burnt since. <laughs> do so you remember you who just... else was on the CD? <sighs> I really don't. I wonder no. who you were after. Yeah, no, it's Head Planet Earth. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not too sure. The, there was a, there was a record label from Worcester that we were friendly with, and they were called Lockjaw Records, which is actually yeah. the guys from Tribute to Nothing. They put yeah. out Unsane, as I'm sure you're aware. Well, well they, they, they were Worcester-based, yeah. and they, I think the um, my, my old my old metal rap metal band wasn't signed to Lockjaw, but we were we were pals. So I think that was how we kind of got a look in because it was a metal hammer. In association with Lockjaw Records, wow, cover map thing. You know what? I actually and I was at school. Vaguely at the remember time. that one. You can fuck right off. You don't. <laughs> we we actually have an unsung uh, mixtape in the pipeline, which is our favourite cover mount CDs, and I've got a massive collection of them in my garage. I may have your band in my garage. All right. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> <Be interesting. laughs> Does anybody know a Chris's garage? <laughs> I have to pay him a little visit in the middle of the night. So, uh, just out of curiosity, have you had to align your Deadlock sound with any well-known uh, rap metal bands? Who would you have said? I th- we were we were going for a Rage Against the Machine kind of thing. Okay, I, I mean that's or, uh, that's respectable. That's, that's or like that's what, what was the other one? Um, who did that? Um, Anger. Oh, downset. Downset. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Downset. That was that was. Do like, you know what I, I think? The kind of wo- that's what we were going for. I know all the words to that song, and I don't know why. But it's a bit like Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Like when I used to do mic checks, I used to have to pick some random thing, and that was the one I did. Right. Hostility towards your position. It's actually one eight seven LA trademark. Don't come to the killing fields if you ain't got no fucking heart. <laughs> there you go. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Wow. It's actually an interesting tie-in, actually. That we'll probably come back to a bit, a little bit later on, talking about deadlock. Now that you've <laughs> broken the seal, and uh, this is what we're here. This to is do. called entrapment. But yeah. yeah, I'm suing you afterwards. We are the Jeremy Pax men. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from that, uh, you didn't stick around in Worcester, though, did you? I always associated you in the early days with Bristol. Well, this is where um, I became a professional musician, I guess. Fuck buttons started in Bristol. 
So I'd met um, Andy skateboarding in Worcester when we were kids, you know, around deadlock time, actually. Um, and didn't see him for a, a good couple of years. Went to Bristol to study illustration and um, he was there and we got chatting and that's when we started to do fuck buttons. Because you do, you paint as well, don't you? Yeah, I do. I did. I did. I did paint when I was in Worcester. I, you know, when I was doing art foundation or whatever, you know, you do when you're 15 years old. But um, I, I've started painting again recently. Yeah. Well, if you feel like sharing any pictures, that'd be quite nice. I can do. Yeah. Yeah, we can yeah, post. I can't see any reason why not. Yeah. Good. Yeah. We can maybe play, make a montage of your paintings with the Deadlock soundtrack. <laughs> Yeah, I think for a montage to accompany a deadlock song, it's going to need to be some kind of like graffiti street art. I don't think it's going to be. Yeah. So, Bristol, what, what time period was that? This is I'm I'm terrible at this, by the way. This is the so I, I know the first fuck buttons demo came out in 2006. So that right. was uh, let's see if there are any ghosts in here. Yeah, is that the title? Yeah, yeah. And it was 2006. It 2006 was, hey? that came out. So right, well, I don't know how long how, how long were you working on it in the background before that. That happened reasonably quickly, actually, after the fuck buttons forming. I would say there's probably a couple of months in it. Right, okay. Yeah. So 2005, 2006, what, yeah. what was Bristol like then? Bristol was good. It's uh, There's a lot of um, students there, obviously, and the art school is renowned. The, so The music scene's renowned as The well. music scene is renowned too, yeah. So we had a good time there, actually, you know, when when we were starting out. There's no shortage of shows to play and yeah. everybody was coming out. You know, noise music was a real thing at that time. It was really big around then. So, yeah, we had a we had a good time. Obviously, growing up in the Midlands and being into metal, it seems like an obvious association. But so does perhaps moving to Bristol and becoming quite involved with electronic music. Do you think that played a part in the direction that you kind of went? Because, I mean, Bristol is known for being such a, like, so innovative as regards electronic music. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I think it was very welcoming to people trying to do new and strange things. So we didn't have any kind of boundaries in that sense. It felt like you could be as weird as you wanted to and kind of get away with it. So that was that was good. Although some early fuck button shows were not... Uh, greeted with open arms especially in the town where i grew up worcester actually i think we played our second ever fuck button show was um was in worcester at a pub called the paul pry and we were playing with trencher pretty heavy yeah, and the the landlady of the pub, the Paul Pry, she uh, she killed all the electricity and to the bar and came in and decided to tell us that it, this wasn't music. And yeah. <laughs> well, so it was it like because I've heard of, I've heard that original demo and it's pretty harsh, but it's still quite melodic. I mean, the name came from using sort of unorthodox toys instruments. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, I mean, in the in the first instance, we were both really, really broke. Well, I certainly was at university, and um, in fact, I didn't have any of my own equipment. I just used Andy's equipment, and he was very um, keen on car boot sales to try and find equipment outside of the famous Metal Zone pedal. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, in fact, maybe he did find one of those at a car boot sale. I'm really not sure, but anyway. How um, many Metal Zone pedals do you own? How many do I have? Right now, I have... For functioning, I think. <laughs> yeah. You ever thought about going for an endorsement? Yeah, I've thought about it. <laughs> I'm not too sure how much I want to. Is it truly worth it? You know, you the know. Stigma. So good. Yeah. There's, there's, there's one part of me that has been trying for a good couple of years now to really ditch the Metal Zone pedal and start branching out into other pedals yeah. if I want that crunch. But I just can't shake it. Like, you know, <laughs> I try so hard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, like the Heinz ketchup of yeah. metal pedals. Yeah, little Jimmy just need one more hit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, what were you? What was it you were doing with those instruments that made the landlady so outraged? I mean, was that typical of your shows back then? Were they really harsh? Well, I, they were really harsh. Yeah, and they were, you know, for the main part, pretty atonal <laughs> and confrontational. You know, I we used to play in the um, in the audience actually, when we first started out, and I used to have the middle of a washing machine drum that I used to 
have on my head, scream into it, take like <laughs> contact mics to it and kind of run around the room with this thing on my head like a lunatic. Andy kind of did the same. And we carried on playing on the floor until we played a show in London once at Mother Bar. And that was the last time we actually played on the floor. The, the majority of our equipment got filled with beer. So, that, <laughs> so being broke. By you, uh, the crowd. By the crowd. <laughs> yeah. So being broke and students, we decided that maybe it was time to stop doing that. That the let's see, uh, it was a demo, right? I mean, it's quite a long demo. It's about half an hour, sorry. Is a is a demo. Yeah, yeah. but it, there's stuff on that that eventually appeared on on the first album, Street Horsing, like, or at least reworked. But it's, yeah, it's not entirely tonal. It's it's quite melodic at points. No, but that I think that was maybe when we actually had kind of like formed the the fuck button sound by that point. We, the, the earlier shows that we were playing were, I think there might even be some early FBs demos kicking around from before that. In fact, I think I found one in that cupboard right there the other day. Yeah, and that was that was more atonal. That was that hadn't started to um, adopt this kind of like welcoming idea of melody or anything at that point. It was just pure fuzz for the sake of it. How did writing process work? You know, was there a writing process? Did you go out on stage and just fuck shit up and then take ideas from that, or did you have ideas that you then build around live? Um, this is the electronic musician's mantra, isn't it? The lifelong mantra, which sometimes means something and other times means absolutely nothing. But we had like a couple of ideas that we used as a basis, which we would kind of like yeah. jam around with. Yeah, well, you can live. hear on that first demo. There's a couple of the percussive sounds you can hear that reappear later on in some of, some of the records, especially. Yeah, I used um, a thunder stick quite a lot, and I used to play the thunder stick with whatever I could find. You know, I, I, I went through a stage of like building stuff, like circuit bending stuff, taking things, anything that would make a noise, like the middle of a washing drum, for example, and like, or like a thunder stick, and attaching contact mics to it. And then a lot of those percussive sounds were actually drummed onto the side of a, a thunder stick. I had tight on the spring and used a boss. RS20, whatever looper it is, just to loop <laughs> yeah, the right. percussive sounds over the on top of itself, which formed a lot of the percussive sounds in Fuck Buttons. I mean, until maybe Tarot Sport, I don't think we'd actually really ever considered what we were going to use for a kick drum or even bass or even any sub or anything like that. Yeah, like even at the early stages with the different musical sensibilities you guys were bringing to the party. I think I, I, I mean, I definitely come from more of a metal place than, than Andy does. Can I ask, are there guitars on Let's See? Because there's, yes. it sounds like there are, yeah. yeah Is that are. the only record you've ever properly used guitars, like corded guitars? No, no. Andy was particularly against guitars when we recorded Tarot Sport for whatever reason. And I remember when we were in the studio with Andrew Weatherall, he, he did ask me, he was like, what's Andy's problem with guitars here? <laughs> um <laughs> And I'm not too sure why, but anyway, come slow focus. I, I think he he didn't feel the same way about guitars anymore. So there are there are guitars on that. There's a lot of guitars in Blank Mass. And so you were bringing a kind of metal component, and where where was Andy coming from? To to, to your ears, I mean, obviously we can't ask him, but he was coming from more of an electronic thing. I know that when he was, uh, I think maybe before he moved to Bristol, he was very in interested in trip hop, but then. Being in Bristol, like, he was he was always more into kind of electronic music, glitch, things like that, maybe kind of contemporary classical electronic stuff as well. So in terms of your, like, where does your influence on melody come from? Because we were talking about Black Mass and there's some, like, big 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. like, influences in there, like, from, like, video games or... I don't know. I'm a child of the 80s and, you know, I, yeah. I, 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 and I you know, as a, as a child, I was a huge fan of uh, recently shamed King of Pop. <laughs> or maybe not so recently shamed, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> recently accepted. Daddy got recently, accep <laughs> re recently accepted as shamed, yeah. Lost um, profits, are we talking about? <laughs> um, I, well, I kind of felt on, on Let's See, 
I, and I, I don't know if this is true, I may be reading too much into it, knowing what I know now, but it, it did seem there were ideas, maybe maybe not calling to bands like Neurosis and Sun, but certainly that have commonalities with those those artists. Um, it's, yeah. it's more lo-fi, clearly, and it's not a conventional metal setup. Well, not that Sun's conventional in any way, but um, you seem to be arriving at uh, similar places via a very different route. Yes. No, no, I can see that. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Sun, actually. Uh, something uh, occurred to me just then. There was an old chat room message board for Bristol musicians that Andy and I would post on. And so would, you know, a lot of people in the Bristol music scene. I remember after our first show, it was a lot of people were like, you know, this is utter bollocks. What is this nonsense? And um, I remember Team Brick, Matt, who also played in Beak for some time. Uh-huh. He 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 posted like a one line review of our maybe first show ever, and he said it's like sun but fun and fun was spelled F U double A. That is pretty good actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, at what point did you? Because you ended up living in London, didn't you? Did you both end up living in London? Yes, uh, and we'll work backwards because I don't want to skip over some of the other early stuff. But mm-hmm. when when in the fuck buttons history did the London move happen? Andy was living in London already, and I, I'd actually moved back to Worcester briefly after being at university. Don't ask me which year that was, because I'm not going to be able to tell you. Can you trace it based on your catalogue, and I might be able to give you a year? Well, <laughs> well, I, I'm guessing that I um, <clears throat> I moved to London just before we did our first ever large US tour, which was with Caribou. I'm going to say 2007. Break tomorrow kind of time? Yeah. Actually, do you know what? I think it might have been... <laughs> it might, I, there was only a year in between um, street horsing and tarot sport. This is a man that's lived when he can't remember. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> yeah. all a blur. Yeah. The rock and roll years. So yeah. street horsing was 2008. Before that was the Mogwai split, and then before that was break tomorrow. Right, so I'm guessing I moved to London around 2008. <laughs> but again, don't quote me on that. And was that like a, a purely sort of career orientated like we should be in the, in the midst of this this is where most of our business arena, meetings are and all that kind of stuff the uh it, it had just started to pick off so i i think um there was a there was a decision to kind of try and be closer geographically to write yeah you guys have been intertwined and you personally have been intertwined with mogwai for a while mm-hmm. um i know you kind of cited them in interviews and things mm-hmm. like that the bright tomorrow ep mm-hmm. uh single I guess two tracks, single, EP. Single. Came out in 2000. The B-side, yeah. Yeah, came mm-hmm. out in 2007. Um, Little Bloody Shoulder and that has a big Mogwai feel to it. Yes. Um... It was named after, here's a fun fact, it was named after Tim from Part Chimp's cat. <laughs> was the cat called Bloody Shoulder? No, but he'd <laughs> been out for a fight one of the nights when we were recording with John from Mogwai, and we started to call him Little Bloody Shoulder. I forget the name of the actual cat. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. This legend lives on yeah. longer than most cats. Though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that single actually was Mojo number one playlist of the month, I seem to recall. It was received really wow. well. Yeah. So I did not know that. There you go. Um, and things like the, the, the organ motif in it, uh, and even just, I think, the, the chord progressions in it had that kind of slightly understated optimism of stuff like Mogwai Fear Satan. Yeah. And it was a name that was getting used a lot when people were trying to come to terms with what you guys were doing. I personally don't think it applies a lot of the time it's used, but I think, you know, when you're a journalist... You mean the, uh, the Mogwai reference? Yeah. When you're a journalist and you're looking for ways to sort of find reference points, I think you, you reach for certain ones, and Mogwai were an obvious one at that time. I mean, I can see parallels, though. Don't, don't oh, get me wrong there. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, uh, yeah. The Bright Tomorrow track that the, the single's named after, which also appears on Street Horsing, mm-hmm. was the first, is that the first time you used the black metal-style vocals? No, actually, I I had used them prior to that 
for some of the earlier stuff when we were in and around Bristol, but that's that will be the first recorded document of that stuff happening, yeah. I think uh, looking from the outside in, there's something distinctly alternative, uh, I use that like with a small A, about <laughs> fuck buttons that doesn't allow, or not just fuck buttons, your, your, your blank mass work as well, that has avoided it being too cleanly defined as electronic. You've mm. always had this affiliation with rock and alternative, you've done, I mean, you've, you've, at this point now, you're doing tours with bands like Cannibal Corpse and things like that. It's always avoided a pigeonholing, partly because the production is quite fierce, mm-hmm. but also because there's, Musical decisions uh, within the within it that are maybe not what you'd expect from electronic musicians, and I think I, d- I don't know how much you see this being so close to it, but that that arrived so early on, it very early staked out a wider remit for that band than it perhaps would have right. if you'd had two electronic tracks, two purely electronic tracks. Yeah, no, I can see that. I don't, I don't think it was any kind of like conscious effort to try and kind of like broaden any horizon when we first started to do it. Um, I think I'm just more interested by something that pushes a few more buttons, you know. And as far as you know, recorded sound goes, I mean, I, I want, I want, I want to feel like I'm involved in it. I, I, I find that a lot of electronic producers, it's too, it just feels very s- sterile to me. Do you think that electronic music's too safe? Generally speaking, well, I think it's too well. You know, there are ob- obviously a lot of my friends and peers and stuff that I hang around. People that I hang around with, I would not say that at all about them. But as a general rule, I mean, Jamie XX is one of the biggest faces in electronic music now. I mean, what the fuck is that all about? <laughs> Um, I think like one that I find quite interesting and one that I feel quite conflicted about is John Hopkins. Right. Because musically, there's a lot that John Hopkins does, um, especially tracks like Collider, that uh-huh. have like, a little bit of edge and I think they're really interesting. There's something about it that I find a little bit troubling. So I think like to, to try and kind of come up with an analogy, mm-hmm. it's like if you're hungry, if John Hopkins music, you're hungry and you eat, you're you're hungry very quickly again. There's no roughage in it. It's mm-hmm. it's it's very well arranged often, but it's also easily digested. It's a little bit like fast food, and it very quickly seems to go through your system, and you want more. Whereas there's other electronic music that you get into. One of the acts actually is an act that I heard about. Via yourself, mm-hmm. there's a bank of uh, an echo vessel from from Bristol. Oh yeah. Which is very dark. There's a lot to try and pick apart and deal with. It's big whole grain electronica instead of you know processed and i think that stuff seems to have more longevity i think i think it depends what you want i mean electronic music you know historically you know in its very first instances it wasn't necessarily built for the club do you know what i mean but there is obviously like a a very large branch of electronic music which is there to make people dance and if it does if it does that effectively then you know it's fine it's it served its purpose um something like vessel though actually really interests me is that the palette of sound is so out there it's so unique that it 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 does both it may, it, it seems somehow it has this kind of it can make you dance but it also seems very it's very interesting i think i, I think that's the difference i mean i'm not you know, again, using the food analogy, I think a lot of what John Hopkins does, does is very sweet, very delicious, very palatable. Mm. I mean, how do you feel about producers like Arca? Mm. 
Uh, I think Ark is great. Yeah. It's very processed, though. So I mean, it, yeah, but you know, I I feel like it, it is it is what it like. Ark is different now, especially with this most recent album of his. It's it's like hyper emotional. It's like next level emotional, which I can get, which I can certainly get behind. They mm-hmm. definitely like their granular synth- granular synthesis, but that's I I think Ark is very a uh, pretty unique actually where electronic music stands at the moment, and I you know I'm all for that. Can I just? Uh, I feel like. I think you're approaching electronic music like it's one genre there, and it like you were saying, like Arca is very processed, and you maybe prefer I don't know what do you prefer more analog or? No, it's it's hard to say because I actually do. I, like, I mean, I, I'm conflicted about people like John Hopkins. I'm using him as an example. He's just yeah. an avatar here, but I'm conflicted because there's a lot that I like about it. There are a lot of very pretty noises, and there's a lot of really clever and very capable production. But I'm also very aware that it's almost too easy to enjoy. It's almost it almost feels like I said, like it's like a fast food cheeseburger. It's like it's good, it's delicious. I'm having fun eating it, but then it doesn't last. There's some kind of slightly guilty pleasure to it. There's like, no such thing as a guilty pleasure. I know, there's just pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> mm, I don't know. No, I do I do have a weird nagging doubt about I feel like about what he's stuff. doing is he's making really interesting dance music rather than simple electronic music. Do you like it? You like it, but you don't think you should. I like it, but I think it has a it has a bit of insight into what's going to push my buttons, and it's catering to it. But there's not a lot of like, like I said, I'm trying to use the analogy. That's, that's got to be quite clever to be able to do that. Well, I think it is quite clever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a long process of refinement, mm-hmm. not just over his career, but over the careers of loads of musicians mm-hmm. who've learned what it takes to get an audience, but who don't necessarily aren't. There's not enough challenging stuff in that music. To give it longevity. Do you want to see the imperfections? Yeah, I want. I, I, can, I can get behind that. Like, I, I feel like you know, if people show themselves as vulnerable when talking about music or anything, really, I think you you get like a real honesty there, which I'm actually getting from Arca, actually, mm-hmm. with the oh, current I'm not stuff. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just saying yeah. from from my point of view, I, I, I definitely get that more so with their latest record. Yeah, I th- basically, I think what it comes down to is I don't want. A record to reveal all its secrets at once I want there to be stuff that I have to pick apart and unpack and that slowly dawns on me, I want there to be harder moments in the music and certainly with John Hopkins which I like, let's be clear I do like it, mm-hmm. but I do feel that everything's there straight away, I'm not having to work at it, it's but very easy uh, To me that's like comparing Mashuga and Pantera, I mean Pantera you've got it all there on a plate, there's your meat and potatoes, whereas Mashuga you're going to find things two years after listening mm-hmm. to the, the record, but they're they're both differently good, you know. Yeah, there you go, food for thought. <laughs> Literally. Um, so, I mean, coming on the back of the Bright Tomorrow thing and that change in direction, the Mogwai split was, certainly for people in Scotland, a big point of recognition for you guys. And I think, like, we, yeah. we, we magazines like NME and stuff as well. It was... from, we were actually on tour with Mogwai at the time. That it was a It was a tour split, so that's why that came about. And you remixed uh, Fear Satan? We actually did a cover of Fear Satan. Right, okay. And Mogwai remixed one of our tracks. But we, yeah, we did a, we did a cover. Is it a... The Shibuya drunk mix, as in like... That's right, yeah. Is that yeah. like based on being out in tour in Japan by any chance? I, I imagine that Barry had just made that remix just before tour started when he was in Tokyo. I, yeah, I, th- I, think the, I think the remix title speaks for itself there. <laughs> and the same year, you brought out the first album, Street Horsing. Now, I, ha- I just happen to know that you have mixed feelings about that first album listening back to it, but I'm kind of curious to kind of get your honest opinion of it because I mean, not, mm. not everybody can be expected to look back on their earlier work and feel as enthused as they were at the time but how does that album sit with you now? I mean I won't listen to it <laughs> Even if we make you <laughs> I mean if, if you made me I'd listen to it yeah but I wouldn't choose to I think it, it's it's a difficult one because I, I think it for what it is it's like a perfect snapshot and I always believe that's what I've, all these things should be anyway and John did an amazing job based on the very, very limited goods that we gave for him to work with. 
like a like a really really good job actually but i i just you know I, there's there's a there's a level of um i i find it very inapt <laughs> that album personally but you know it's a it's a learning curve and it's a snapshot and it makes sense for for the time that it happened and i don't think anybody really likes their, the first thing they ever did yeah, that's true. You always see artists going through their discography, and they never rank their first record as their best. Yeah, I feel like if I if I thought that first album was amazing, I'm you know we might not be sat here now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's some there's some interesting points in it. I think the like sweet love for planet Earth, the the opening track again, the black metal thing appears. I, I, th- I can get I can get behind that track actually. Yeah, it's like it's a very distinct track in the mm-hmm. in the history of fuck buttons. The black metal thing for me certainly doesn't sit as naturally as it does on later things like Rhesus Negative and Odd Scene from Black mm-hmm. Mass. The black metal thing feels it's just not as settled in. You know, it's not as comfortable in its place as it is now. Um, but the music itself, like, I think it made a big statement mm-hmm. uh, when it came out. And I think also Ribs Out, there's some motifs in that that have really become quite iconic. The, the kind of screamy animal sound jungle kind of thing that you did with the vocals on it. What was that? Was that you? Was that Andy? Was that, that ribs out the vocals, and that would have been Andy. And the, the the all the percussive elements on ribs out would have been me um, in the characteristic style that I mentioned earlier. Was it uh, okay? Let's talk about music. That track. Is okay, it? let's talk magic. about magic. Yeah. Magic. Sorry, yeah, yeah. magic. I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> that's like uh, now that's what I call magic <laughs> volume one uh, yeah there's a lot of titles to remember here Ben come on um, but I think you can hear in that one much more typically kind of fuck buttons blank mass chord changes starting to appear There are some sort of like quite direct patterns. I mean, even like like I said, comparing it to the Mogwai Fear, Fear Satan sort of gently optimistic progressions. That's the first one where I think there's a slightly there's a slight edge coming in to the to, to the chord changes that are underlying mm-hmm. it, which I think becomes quite a, a feature of the work later on. And it's got a sort of caustic ambient vibe to it. Mm-hmm. It is it is ambience, but it's 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 pretty pretty harsh. Uh, not easy listening. Um, I mean, the whole thing feels closer to art. You know, and and slightly less structure. Not the, the the song structures are a lot more felt out. They're a lot less planned. There was no quantizing on anything on that first album. The the ARP sound in Bright Tomorrow slips in and out about three times throughout throughout a listen, <laughs> which to me now is infuriating. <laughs> but I, I I do see the charm. Yeah, you know. The, can I can I just say um. My mum came and picked me up from uni. It was my last day of uni. We had to drive back through the hills of Scotland and I had a little, I'd burned a CD and it had, I think it had ribs out and it had, okay, let's talk about magic on it along with a bunch of other stuff. And my mum fucking hated it. Yeah. And I just, I knew that I was into it then. (laughs) (laughs) Glad glad to have helped her. It was a good trip home though. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, after that was, like you said, there wasn't a lot of time between that and Tarot Sport. I mean, were you already writing Tarot Sport as Street Horsing was coming together for the release or was that just a very, very productive period? We got a fair chunk of it done. That was very productive. By the Yeah, by the time Street Horsing came out, we, we had actually written a fair old lot of it. I was living in Crouch End at the time and um, we wrote the rest of the stuff um, in my bedroom in Crouch End, actually. And it didn't it it didn't really take very long 
to piece that one together somehow. I think that was when um, fuck buttons clicked the most, actually. That's, that's a big, like, sonically, it's a big step forward. Yeah. It's such a small time as well. It's mm-hmm. like there's a lot of things coming into focus very sharply, mm. um, which is ironic given the name of the following album. But yeah. uh, <laughs> they, they, they really yeah. do. It's, 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 it's a, a lot of elements evolving very, very fast. Um, there's a real kind of sense of identity to the sound at that point as well. Yeah. Do so you think that was the first sound of Fuck Buttons as a... No, I don't say it's the first sound of Fuck Buttons, but I think that was when we were at our most... That's when we gelled the most, I think. That's when we were at, not creative peak, but uh, I don't know. It, it, just seemed to, it just seemed to be very easy the most to effortless. write. The most effortless, yeah. Are there yeah. any... I mean, what parts of that album... I'm assuming you can still listen to that album quite comfortably. Uh, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Again, you know, I, I, I'm still, you know, even the first Blank Mass album, I, fi- I find problems in that. I don't mean to discredit these things for what they are at all, ever. I'm very happy to have been a part of every single thing I've ever released. But obviously, you know, some, you, you, you grow and you, you know, your, your sensibilities change and your interest in certain sounds changes. Including Deadlock. Including Deadlock, yeah. <laughs> um, are there any moments on on Tarot Sport that really stole? They really stand out as being like, yes. Yeah. Um, I do remember part. when we when we were recording. So we did that one with Weather Oral, and we went and recorded everything, and we left him alone after you know laying down everything, re- recording all of the tracks. We left him alone to start mixing. We went back in the next morning and because we were so used to, you know, we'd written it in my bedroom and um, we'd been just going through shitty practice amps and it's very difficult at that stage because we hadn't road tested anything. Like road testing was like a big thing to see with fuck buttons to see if something worked or not, so if it felt right. you weren't playing many of these live at the time? We hadn't really played any of them live at the time. So, I mean, a lot of the time when we were writing stuff, it was kind of a bit of a guessing game as to whether they were going to work or not. You know, obviously, as I just mentioned, like playing live would, would dictate whether they felt right or not. Yeah. Um, because that's the setting that we wanted them to be experienced in, really. Which and is, we- which about it, I think, let's not just skim past that. That is... To some extent, a little bit counterintuitive for a lot of electronic artists mm-hmm. who, who don't consider themselves, we're a live band, so, you know, here's a record, but this record will be just dictated by what feels best live. I think that's mm-hmm. that's got to be at least half the time the opposite of the case for electronic artists who are very much sort of in their own mind, in a studio, it's a very internalised thing, mm-hmm. and then they, they, they do something that makes it sort of happen live, but it's it's secondary to the actual just writing the songs. So that in itself is interesting in terms so I've, of... I've never, I've never had that mindset, though. Yeah. I'm, I'm somebody who goes to shows. Uh, granted, I haven't been to a show for a while, but um, that's always been very, something very important to me. And um, I think one can't really exist without the other at all, especially not nowadays. And it, maybe in, in a lot of ways as well, that uh, other than the kind of, metal you know heritage and things like that and maybe that's another aspect of why fuck buttons have maintained a, f- like a foot in each camp uh, in in regards to not being an out and out electronic band yeah. being 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 compatible and not just fuck buttons blank mass by extension mm-hmm. but being being compatible with these out and out rock acts and and noise yeah. acts and things like that were there points where it really clicked? I mean, you were saying that when you went in, Andrew had been mixing it, presumably, or him and his engineer had been mixing it. And then the first time we heard the the mix of um, what's the first record, Subsolo. <laughs> <So, laughs> I am not cutting out, but I'm warning you right now. <laughs> the first time we heard Surf Solar, the, the mix of that, that was a particular moment when when I was like, wow, okay, so this... Hang on a second, have we ID'd this guy? Is this <laughs> you said yourself, there's a lot of track names to remember and they're all fucking stupid, let's not mess around. <laughs> right, sorry. So you went in to hear the, the song Surf Solar written by Ben Poor and Andrew Hung. Yeah. <laughs> None of whom are here, apparently. <laughs> and... And that was a, that was a that was a pretty amazing moment. I mean, as as I was saying, you know, 
having to hear these things out live to tell whether they work. This was the first time that we'd heard this as we would like it to be heard, if yeah. you know what I mean. Um, were, you, if, were you and Weatherall really, like, did you really click in terms of his approach to the music? Yeah, he, we really did, yeah. He was, um, I, I think he came out of hibernation a little bit for recording artists that, you know, for recording other other artists mm-hmm. um, to to do the Fuck Buttons record. Yeah, I think he'd just been only working on his own stuff and, and DJing for a very long time. I think it may be since Screamadelica, I think. Wow. Maybe that might have been the one that he did before um, Tarot Sport. Correct me if I'm wrong. I probably am. I usually am. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it was amazing to kind of see this, It fa- you know, sounding like it felt right. Yeah, did you know it was going to be that kind of so acid techno Sort of the, with all the, the drone elements, did you realise it was going to be uh, as much as that? Because that is, that is a pretty intense and overwhelming song once it gets going. Yeah, I it's, mean... It's druggy as hell. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I, like the, the second track in that one, Rough Steez, I'm just going to put the names in there so you uh-huh. can keep track. Um, yeah. I, th- I thought the percussion in Rough Steez made a lot of nods to some of the percussion on Street Horsing. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was so, they were so close to each other and, you know, writing the pair of them was, you know, there was a year in between them. So I think Tarot Sport definitely still was sharing a similar sonic palette. What the fuck is Rough Steez, by the way? <laughs> Bad style. Really? Yeah. All right. That's a, is yeah. that a London thing? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> um, And I mean... There's there's a few I'll I'll, I'll bring this up a, a, a few times and it was a, a kind of a mutual friend the Jason Costello that brought up the phrase inflection point. There is an inflection point at a few stages in your career and I think one of those for me as a listener is Olympians. Mm-hmm. That is a big, big, big progression musically. That was another moment, actually. Sorry to interrupt there. That was another moment on Tarot Sport. But yeah, you, you know, when we were listening to the um, when we were listening to the recordings back, I mean, I was actually going somewhere on the train, and I was actually going past the Olympic Stadium when it was being built. And we had no idea, by the way. This wasn't like some kind of like uh, plan. <laughs> to name it Olympians with, yeah. in like the vain hope that maybe at some point it might be used, you know, or whatever. Um, but it just, it's, it was just strange, a strange moment actually, like, especially in retrospect, looking back at it and the fact that it was used in 2012 opening ceremony that like it first started to click that this song might actually be something, you know, special when I was driving past on the train and seeing the Olympic Stadium it, being built. Is it that weird thing where suddenly you find yourself being moved by yourself, by something you didn't even realise you you had, you know, you didn't, it was so new that you didn't quite identify it as your own yet. And you're yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that actually. Again, because you know, these things hadn't been road tested, so we didn't really know how. I mean, I often, you know, as as you well know, I play very, very loud on stage. Yeah, we were talking about a time we saw you live at uh, Electric Fields. Electric Fields. Yeah, where you? It was honestly. Oh, that was a fucking joke. Pause. That was too. That was maybe. Too, I, I never thought I'd hear myself say this, but I think that was too loud. <laughs> they had a fucking huge system in there. Yeah, I think you might have. That was astonishing. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean that that's that's got to be a pretty profound feeling. Is that one of those moments as well when you start suddenly texting? You know, in this case, Andrew being like, "Holy fuck, man, we're onto something here. This is this sounds incredible." Yeah, I mean, it, there was definitely a. You know, a, a touch of that going on for sure. Yeah, uh, there's a, a couple of moments now. There's the the high synth refrain that comes in mm-hmm. in Olympians. Mm-hmm. 
it's one of those moments, like one of those gush moments that is just fucking beautiful. It's a really, really gorgeous moment. Cassio time through uh, Metal Zone. Try it, try it, try it, kids. <laughs> um, I think Flight of the Feathered Serpent as well, isn't mm-hmm. it? Another pretty standout aspect of that uh, kind of assimilation of like weird percussion and then that kind of saturated post rock drone. Uh, it gave a fair representation of some of your roots and some of the noise because I mean with stuff like Olympians you could have started to air very much into it like oh this music's got a lot softer a lot more melodic but there is still a lot of drone in there mm-hmm. still a lot of like very like let's say power electronics but certainly like moments of real intensity mm. that I can imagine I don't think I ever saw that song live but it would, would actually be something pretty, pretty we, we um we used to close the set with that actually for a good a good year and a half I think Tara's bought touring time Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 